This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and policy insider Chris Condolucci. Welcome, Health Plan Alliance members. I'm Dennis Bolin. You know that I work with you at the Health Plan Alliance. Welcome to the December edition of our policy podcast. And with me is our good friend, Chris Condolucci. Hi, Chris. Hey, how are you, Dennis? I hope you enjoyed the recent Thanksgiving holiday. Hope you're gearing up for the upcoming holidays. And I hope everybody who's tuning in also enjoyed their Thanksgiving and is looking forward to the holidays coming up. Well, this is a busy time of year, Chris, so let's jump right in. And speaking of holidays and time off, I just got back from New York City this past weekend. Excellent. And everywhere you go, you've got to show your vaccination card. Over the whole weekend, I saw maybe five people not wearing a mask, even out on the street. And then I get back here to Dallas and nobody wears a mask. You don't have to show your vaccination card to go or do anything. So, you know, it just shows the disparity across the country. But there was a lot in the news this last week about the Biden administration's vaccine mandates and the court cases, of course, that they have generated. So maybe that's a place for us to start then is fill us in on uh, what we need to know about the vaccine mandates. Yeah. And I'll just even pick up, Dennis, on what you just mentioned about being up in New York City because I'll jump ahead, but then I'll jump back to your question. New York City just imposed a vaccine mandate on private employers. So somewhat similar to what the federal government's doing as it relates to vaccine mandates, certain pockets of the country, and when I say pockets of the country to specific locations like New York City, are following suit and even going a little bit further than even what the federal government has done. So it's interesting that you bring up New York City and uh, obviously uh, segues into the discussion on the vaccine mandates, because as you and I were discussing prior to this podcast, Dennis, at the end of our prior podcast, we discussed the vaccine mandates. And there has been some updates since that time to your question. And one of the things that we talked about at the end of our last podcast was distinguishing between the vaccine mandates from the Biden administration. As a general matter, there are three of them, two of which we will talk about right now. The one vaccine mandate impacts private employers that do not receive federal funds. The other mandate impacts employers that do receive federal funds like funds for Medicare. So you have a vaccine mandate that impacts healthcare workers working for hospitals and health systems, as well as insurance carriers that are contracting with Medicare. And let's start there, Dennis. So on November 29th, a federal judge actually suspended this vaccine mandate for healthcare workers and employers who contract with Medicare. Now this November 29th ruling was only applicable in 10 states, primarily Midwest states, so I'm not going to name all the states, because the next day, November 30th, a separate federal judge actually imposed a nationwide suspension to the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers and employers that contract with Medicare. Now, what's important here, Dennis, is 
A lot of hospitals, health systems, and employers, whether they're receiving federal funds or not, have actually voluntarily imposed their own vaccine mandate prior to even the Biden administration's announcement of these vaccine mandates earlier in the fall. And then other employers out there, be it hospitals, health systems, or other employers, have in response to the Biden administration started to comply. But there are some employers out there who have yet to comply, who have started to comply. And now that we have this suspension of the mandates are actually downshifting. And they're kind of slowing down their compliance because the court said you don't have to comply. Now, what's important here is future courts, other appellate courts, maybe even the Supreme Court, brings back the vaccine mandate and makes it applicable. So employers who have yet to comply or have downshifted have to keep an eye out on where the courts are going and whether the vaccine mandate remains or whether it actually is suspended indefinitely. Hmm, interesting. So our members fall into that category. I know a couple of the HR discussion questions were around, do health plans who receive Medicaid and Medicare funds, they are included in that group, right? Yeah, in my opinion, you know, based on my interpretation of the, the, the law and how the Biden administration is going about imposing these mandates, if you're receiving federal funds through a, a government contract, um, this particular mandate that applies to healthcare workers and employers that receive federal funds um, would apply to those health plans. And uh, I'll note um, this particular vaccine mandate for healthcare workers, employers contracting with Medicare, was supposed to go into effect or is supposed to go into effect on January 4th. But now, again, with these lawsuits, putting a temporary halt to the mandate, it calls into question whether your members, for example, who do get uh, Medicaid and or Medicare funds, whether they have to comply by January 4th. And it's reasonable for all of us to question whether we need to comply or not because the courts have stepped in and put a halt to compliance. But again, because the judicial process works in a way where one court might say something, but another court, either a higher court or even the Supreme Court, may say something differently. So we all have to keep our eyes on this as it relates to compliance. Well, Chris, we're kind of getting used to living in this uncertain space, you know, as things work their way through the courts. And uh, this sounds very similar. I want to go back. Both of us talked about New York and New York's mandate is specifically, as you said, for private employers who do not receive federal funds. So is there something special we should know about that? Because that may affect many of our health plans clients who purchase health insurance from sure. our health plans. Sure. And on that, I mean, just going back to the New York City mandate, I mean, it's a mandate. It, it has yet to be challenged in, in a court of law. Um, but the way the trend has been going, um, one would expect that there would be some sort of challenge. Um, but as I mentioned, and really to your question, Dennis, the federal government, so President Biden, in addition to the mandate for healthcare workers and employers contracted with Medicare, came out with another mandate uh, applicable to employers who don't receive federal funds. And, and I think that does apply to the clients of, of our members. And what about that one? Well, that um, guidance was issued, uh, or the rules, 
were, were issued through guidance from the Department of Labor's OSHA. And uh, OSHA uh, issued guidance on November 4th. November 5th, there was a court challenge. And on November 5th, a uh, court federal judge actually put a halt to this particular mandate as well, of which we reported in our last podcast. But the update here on the mandate applicable to employers that don't receive federal funds is the Sixth Circuit was tasked with determining whether this prior ruling of suspending the mandate should remain or should be lifted. And we should get an answer from the Sixth Circuit sometime mid-December. So we might hear sooner rather than later uh, that the private employer uh, without federal funds might snap back into place. But again, we might hear in the next week or two that this mandate continues to be on hold. Uh, And again, it just goes to the uncertainty. Employers don't have to comply right now because the court has said you don't. But future courts might overturn that. So everyone has to be uh, very clear of going into this with eyes wide open to make sure that they don't trip over something because they were sleeping at the wheel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to turn, Chris, from uh, lawsuits over the mandates to legislation. And, geez, uh, since January, you have been walking us through all the various legislations, reform packages at the beginning of the year, and then the uh, various infrastructure bills, the hard infrastructure bill, the soft infrastructure bill. And I was listening back early on, and you warned us it was going to be messy to use a common metaphor, watching the sausage being made can you know, kind of turn your stomach <laughs> a little bit. And, you know, I got to say there are times when I just get so frustrated with watching Washington as these things make their way through. And uh, here we are at the very end of the year still debating that soft infrastructure package that has so many components that are going to have an impact on our members. So, you know, where do we stand here 12 months later? Yeah, I, I, I want to give you a brief update because there are some specifics in the House Pass version um, that I'll mention in a second uh, that, that we do want to talk through. But just from a more 60,000 foot level, I mean, to your point, Dennis, we, we've been telling our members you know, since the beginning of the year, that the legislative process is messy. It takes a long time. There's a lot of drama, a lot of drama, and especially as it relates to a very large package of of trying to in, in, enact social spending programs uh, to, to uh, strengthen the, the, the safety net, to uh, help more people get access to health coverage, which is a big deal for our members, um, uh, different changes to the tax code. I mean, that all takes time, and we've seen it play out over the, the the course of the year. And the latest and greatest is the House did pass a version of the soft infrastructure package, which is known as the Build Back Better Act. Uh, that uh, House acted November 19th, and now the Senate is considering that House version. Well, Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate wants to bring the Senate version, which is going to be different from the House pass version, to the Senate floor the week of December 13th. But moderate Democrats in the Senate, like Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, are actually questioning whether the bill should be brought to the floor because Senator Manchin has some concerns over many provisions ranging from adding hearing benefits to traditional Medicare to climate change provisions. Um, 
Also, and it's not just Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema who have been the moderates and have been in the news as it relates to, you know, kind of the 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 ones um, uh, not opposing, but actually having concerns about the Build Back Better Act. There are other Democratic senators who are concerned about some provisions like the state and local tax deduction that was included in the House passed version. I'm not going to go into detail on what that is, but it does provide a tax cut to high income earners and high tax states. And some of the more progressive senators are saying, well, that's inconsistent with our message when it comes to taxes on higher income earners. And so there's some disparate you know, views when it comes to what should be included in the final version of the Build Back Better Act, which leads me to say this. We might not get a vote on the Build Back Better Act by the end of this year, although we've been saying that for the entire course of this year, that we likely will see something by the end of the year. Because Senator Manchin and others have been saying, well, let's just wait until January. Well, let's just wait until February. And we're very close to Christmas. We're very close to the end of the year. There's very few legislative days uh, for a vote to be held on this. Um, and the last thing I'll say is also this is a reconciliation bill. And the Senate parliamentarian, who's the umpire, who calls balls and strikes when it comes to whether provisions meet the rules to be included in a reconciliation bill, has even yet to rule on all of the various provisions and whether they can, again, be included in the underlying bill. Uh, so we're still waiting for that. So again, the sausage-making process takes a long time, a lot of drama, a lot of procedure, and that's where we are. So we may not see something by the end of the year, but let's all keep our eyes out over the next two, three weeks and see what happens. Uh, Chris, it pains me in a way to hear you say that because I've learned to trust you and your predictions have proven over and over to be right on. So when I hear you say that it, something might not be passed until early 2022, it's frustrating because one of the main areas that's in the Build Back Better Act is around prescription drugs. And that is an area of concern for our members anytime they begin to speak about the costs of healthcare. And everybody agrees that prescription drug prices are too high, but we can't seem to come up with a solution. I think there are three proposals that are out there. Can you talk a little bit about those, Chris? Yes, I can. And, and we both thought that it was important to get into a little bit of detail on these provisions um, because dating back to about summer timeframe, you know, we talked about what we would expect to see in this soft infrastructure package, which again is now known as the Build Back Better Act. And the prevailing drug pricing reforms that congressional Democrats and the Biden administration wanted to pursue were allowing uh, HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, to negotiate prices for uh, that Medicare would purchase. And the prevailing provision would have allowed HHS to negotiate the prices of at least uh, 50 and up to 250 drugs that would be sold in Part D and Part B. Another aspect of this drug pricing reforms that we talked about in the summer was adding an out-of-pocket maximum to Part D um, and other Part D redesigns. And then lastly, what we talked about again around the summertime was placing inflationary caps. Basically, the government would say, look, if a, a price of a drug increases faster than inflation in a particular year, well, the drug maker has to actually 
uh, pay that excess back to the federal government in some form. And again, those were the, the, the prevailing reform proposals. Well, then September f- timeframe comes when Congress actually started really debating the provisions to be included in this Build Back Better Act. And actually, three moderate Democrats in the House of Representatives didn't like the proposals that I just discussed. So those proposals fell away. And everything else in and around the soft infrastructure package was being built, but the prescription drug reforms was on the sidelines. Well, come November 2nd of this year, so about a month ago, uh, there was a compromise between progressives and Democrats on the drug pricing reforms. And that provision finally made its way into the House passed version that was passed on November 19th. So what are those provisions? Well, there will still be some price negotiations where HHS will negotiate the price of Medicare-related drugs. But here, it's only going to be prices for up to 10 prescription drugs, no longer 50. And that only grows to 20 prescription drugs as opposed to two 250 drugs. In addition, there'll be a limit placed on that negotiated price that's really based on uh, the time frame uh, uh, over which the drug is available and received uh, FDA approval. Um, the out-of-pocket limits that I discussed actually did make their way into the House Pass version, so there's really not a big change there. Same with inflationary caps, but there's two big changes there that's important to report, um, is the money that will be paid, the excess over the inflation in that particular year has to be paid back to the Medicare Trust Fund. So Congress is saying, well, look, Medicare Trust Fund supposed to go and solve it. That's what the Medicare trustees told us. Well, let's actually try to help the trust fund by actually uh, directing this excess money that drug makers will likely be paying uh, when the prices increase uh, faster than inflation um, to short up Medicare. Uh, That's an important change. In addition, the House Pass version extends this inflationary cap to private health plans. So if Prescription drugs covered by fully insured plans, self-insured plans, if the price grows faster than inflation, then this gets caught up in this particular proposal and the drug makers are required to pay the excess over to the Medicare trust fund. And the fact that this inflationary cap was extended to private plans is a pretty big deal because Never have we had some sort of price control in the private market. We see price controls in the public sector, Medicare, DRGs, et cetera, but we've never seen this in the private sector. So it will uh, be interesting to see where the Senate falls down on these particular drug pricing reforms. So let me mention this, Dennis, because I know I'm talking a lot, but I do want to hit the other two that you raised. You said three. Well, I just talked about the drug pricing reforms. The second um, is the House Pass version imposes a cap on insulin that is covered by the plan. Under this proposal, a participant, a policyholder, will only be required to pay $35 for their insulin. And then the plan will pay the rest of the cost associated with insulin products. So that's a big deal, too, because that's going to be a coster for the plan. Remains to be seen whether that stays in the final version of the Build Back Better Act. And lastly, there was a requirement that PBMs and insurance company-owned PBMs report certain information 
to an insurance carrier as well as a plan sponsor of uh, a self-insured plan. And that information ranges from copayment assistance to the total gross spending of prescription drugs during a six-month period, uh, rebates, discounts, and other compensation um, that the carrier or plan receives. So it's all intended to shine uh, more light on uh, what goes on between PBMs and uh, it, the payers uh, when it comes to discounts, price, compensations paid to brokers. So this is more of a transparency provision, but a very detailed provision that, again, remains to be seen whether the Senate uh, says, yeah, let's go with this and let's keep this in the final version. So those are the three provisions that we wanted to report on, Dennis. Well, once again, Chris, something else we've got to keep on our radar and monitor closely as we move into 2022, right? No doubt. So with that, Chris, I'm going to do something very traditional that is done at this time of year, which is, you know, take a look back over the past 12 months and just ask you for your thoughts about the highlights or lowlights, <laughs> if you want, of what we've taken a look at over the past 12 months. And I thought I'd start by just sharing with you quickly some themes that we here at the Alliance have developed over the year. We've had a chance to have conversations with all 47 of our Health Plan Alliance members. And from those strategic discussions and, and conversations, three themes have really developed for us that we see our Health Plan Alliance members really focusing in on. The first is their people, what they've gone through with COVID, changes in the workplace, remote hybrid workers changing in hiring practices. But some of the things that we've touched on here as well, even just today, the vaccination mandates, for example. The second area and theme that we've seen develop among our members this year is their emphasis on growth. And a lot of the things that we've talked about, especially the healthcare provisions in the hard infrastructure and the soft infrastructure package that dealt with changes on the exchanges, for example, the expansion of Medicaid, the regulations around subsidies and nailing those into place, all of that has an impact on growth and product strategies that our members are focused in on. And then the third area and theme to share with you, Chris, is member experience, uh, making the member the center of our services. And here, there's been a lot of activity this year. When you look at the No Surprises Act, when you look at the transparency regulations, the interoperability regulations, it's really about engaging with the consumer, building trust with the consumer. So, you know, I don't expect you to respond to all of those, but maybe you can just pick out from your perspective, Chris, what you think some of the major themes are from 2021. We pride ourselves, Dennis, on keeping our finger on the pulse of what is going on. We also pride ourselves with what I call looking around the corner and trying to guesstimate what's going to happen and what we're going to see. And a lot of that is driven by member feedback, like you just mentioned, but also just back to our keeping our finger on the pulse of what's going on. And a lot that has gone on throughout this year, you know, I don't know if I'm kind of patting ourselves on the back here, but we, we called a lot of it. We really did. 
And 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 they they hit the themes that you just mentioned that your members care about, which is, um, you know, growth. Uh, you know, we just know that the individual market is stabilizing, and as a result, the exchange markets are becoming stronger. Premiums, you know, are are not increasing like they they did in prior years. The politics have shifted such that uh, now the Democrats are in a position to improve and build on the ACA, and we're seeing those provisions be enacted into law through the American Rescue Plan that was enacted back in March of this year that increased the premium subsidies and expanded eligibility, um, which brought more exchange plan holders to the individual market going back to growth. We knew that congressional Democrats and President Biden would, would, would seek to extend those provisions, and that is what we see in the Soft Infrastructure Build Back Better Act um, that we expect to be enacted, but we're still not sure based on our comments here. And that will have significant growth or result in significant growth if that's enacted into law. Again, something we've been talking about all along. You know, then pivoting over to the no surprises and transparency side of the ledger. You know, Congress acted at the end of last year, which resulted in a slew of regulations. And we've reported on those regulations. And we've reported on compliance with the provisions that have yet to have regulations issued. Um, and so we are keeping our fingers on the pulse and being responsive to our members. And we hope that that our members f feel that we've been, been um, delivering on all of that. And we very much look forward to doing the same in 2022 because all of these same themes, Dennis, in my opinion, are going to be the same themes for 2022. I guess I would add a, a, a third, a fourth theme maybe, is because in November of 2022, it's the midterm elections, which is going to itself be a big deal um, because that's going to determine whether the Democrats still control all of Washington or not, because maybe the political winds, um, which are blowing, tell us that uh, there's going to be a shift in power uh, at the end of next year, which is going to have then another big impact on what goes on in 2023. So we're going to probably have different themes in that year. Uh, but I will stop rambling, uh, Dennis, to just say, one, I, I think we've we've called a lot of what's been going on. Uh, we have been responsive and want to continue to be responsive. And we love what we do. And we're going to continue to do what we love. Exactly, Chris. And I'm very pleased to let our listeners know that we are going to continue our policy podcasts with Chris through 2022. So, Chris, we're going to rely on you as much as ever in this coming year. And I am excited and looking forward to that as well. So, as we sign off today, Chris, I just want to say thank you for guiding us through 2021 getting to know you, relying on your expertise, and it's great to uh, be able to call you a professional colleague as well as a good friend. So thank you for leading us through this year, Chris. Yes, and kind words and, and, and right back at you. I mean, thank you personally for the opportunity to kind of visit with you and with all of your members in these podcasts. And on behalf of Spring Street, thanks for the opportunity for providing all of this information and strategic thinking we can't be more happy and proud and looking forward to 2022. And uh, I wish everybody a happy holidays, a Merry Christmas, and a, a happy and fun and safe new year. And we look forward to talking to you all soon. 
And I'll add by thank you and uh, greetings to uh, all of our listeners as well. It's so great to work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. So I'll add my Christmas and holiday greetings and uh, really looking forward to us all being able to get together again in face-to-face meetings in 2022. So best of holiday wishes to everyone. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our Policy Brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming policy forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.